over your word, Lord. We thank you for your word. We love your word. Where will we be today without your word? And Lord, I just pray right now in Jesus' name that you'll give us good fertile soil of hearts and minds. Lord, I ask you to speak through me your words of life as living seeds of truth. Jesus taught the parable of the seed and the sower. The word is the seed. Let living seeds of truth and life, your word, be sown in a good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives. Watered by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as he waters that seed, cause that seed to take root and grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. We ask you, Lord, to guard the seed. This is the Bible talks about how the enemy tries to steal it. Birds try to steal it. Speaking of the enemy, let your holy angels watch over the word. And Lord, I pray that your word would shine forth. Let it be your word as you speak through me. Let it shine forth like light tonight, light of truth that will pierce the darkness and drive out deception and lies of the enemy and establish truth. Let the word of the Lord be a hammer that breaks down the strongholds that the enemy has tried to erect in people's lives and in their minds. That the word of God will be a mighty hammer that breaks it down. It will be a sword that cuts away what needs to go. And Lord, let everything be accomplished tonight through the preaching and teaching of the word of God that your will be done. And we ask you to, to confirm your word with your signs and wonders. We thank you for the awesome word of the Lord. We bind back anything of the enemy. In Jesus' name, let your word go forth in glory and power and strong anointing. We're hungry for it tonight. In Jesus' mighty name. But I'm gonna tell you, as I come tonight, I come desperate and hungry for more of the Lord tonight. And let me tell you, we've got to have a desperate hunger for the Lord. The Bible says in these last days, some of the greatest warnings, please hear me tonight, some of the greatest warnings that people would their love would grow cold did y'all know that was a warning in the last days our love would grow cold the love the passion that people have for god their love for one another that people's love would grow cold some of the warnings in these last days is that they would be lukewarmness and god i'm gonna tell you jesus is coming back for a bride that is not only without spot or blemish, but on fire for him, that are looking for him. I'm telling you, he's not coming back for a stained, spotted bride. He's coming back for a bride that's longing for his return and made themselves ready. And another great warning was deception. Probably out of all the warnings in the Bible, Jesus' disciples said, tell us about the end of the age. Tell us about, you know, before you come, what's going to be the sign of your coming? What are all these... And they were wondering, and Jesus went on this long discourse. I don't have time to get into it. It has nothing to do with my sermon tonight, but except for this. The very first thing Jesus said was, watch out that nobody deceive you. The greatest warning in the last days for the church is deception. Because the wars and the rumors of wars, they're not really going to affect us all that much. I mean, people may go through things, but spiritually speaking, that's not going to be the greatest problem. It's certainly not going to be the persecution. Persecution makes the church stronger. But what it's going to be is deception. That's the greatest warning. And I'm going to tell you, you've got to make sure that you know the word of God for yourself. People that's been with me for very long will tell you, I preach this all the time, you need to know the Bible for yourself. You need to have a relationship with God for yourself. You need to know the Holy Spirit in his presence for yourself. You need to know his presence. You need to know his voice. The Bible says, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And they won't follow another. You know, I was watching one time. 
there was all these different sheep that there was, I think there was three or four different shepherds and they had all brought their sheep into this field. It was the craziest thing. And I mean, as soon as they came in, all their sheep just intermingled. There is no way that it would be humanly possible for those guys, once that happened, to go through there and pick out each one of their sheep. I don't think. I mean, there was, there was a lot of sheep. I mean, the whole pasture was just full, and they all just intermingled like that. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, what's going to happen? But as the shepherds began to leave, they each had a distinctive call that they did. And they just, they, it was like they didn't even worry about anything, you know, because they knew what was going to happen, obviously. And they just walked off and had this real distinctive call, and their, sh their sheep would perk up because they would hear that specific call, and they would go toward their shepherd. And all of a sudden, you see those same sheep going out like that to their shepherd as they leave. That's a perfect picturing type of what I'm talking about tonight. Jesus' sheep will know his voice apart from other voices. But we've got to spend time with him, and we've got to get to know the Lord's voice. We've got to know his presence, and we've got to be intimate with him, I'm telling you. All right, so what I'm talking about tonight is a desperate hunger for God. I'm concerned because I believe that there's a lot of people out there that, as the Bible predicted, their love has grown cold. They've become lukewarm. In many ways, they're backslidden. Some of them are in deception. But I'm doing a series on revival. This is the third part. And let me give you an example. Revival is whenever God, people, the people of God are crying out because we desperately need God to come down and fix things that we cannot fix. And so we're crying out to God, Lord, come down, move, revive your church again. We need a breakthrough. And people are desperate and they're crying out for God. And revival is when God responds. You know, years ago, there was, there was a, a rule that women could not wear those really tall high heels that had the sharp point on it in airplanes. Because used to, back in the day, those airplanes, if they did that, they could actually poke a hole down through the bottom part. Because even though the woman was not heavy set or anything like that, all of her weight at one time would be on that one concentrated point and they could poke a hole through there. And how many knows you don't want a hole in your airplane, right? So that's one thing we all know that you don't want, okay? And so they, they made it where women could not wear those. But the reason I share that is because of this. Whenever people are crying out for revival and they're desperate for God and God responds, it's like a concentration of God's power beginning to be concentrated in an area and on a situation and it's like revivals like this it's where god attacks the devil's kingdom think about that for a minute you know we're out here doing what we're supposed to be doing going after god and, and using our authority but revivals when god unleashes an attack on the devil's kingdom and just some people really don't even know what revival is they've never lived in revival they've never seen revival one of the things I've studied, I've studied church history a lot, and I've studied revivals. And I've asked Brother Zach to be teaching on some things, you know, historically that I'm going to tell you about revival, and then I'll get into this. What I've seen in revival, one of the places was at Brownsville. I remember going in 1996, and I remember seeing a line going all the way out the church, out the street, around the block, 
And these are some of these people have been there all day. Some of these people have been there since, I don't know, two or three in the morning that there was interviews with them. And some of these people were heathen. Remember me telling you some of the funny stories about Snake Man, remember that? He went in there and got saved though. But anyway, there's, there's these lines of people and I remember coming in and God's presence being incredible. I mean, I'd never felt God's presence like that. I'd grown up in Pentecost and I'd you know, been touched by God, but not, not like this. It was like electricity in the atmosphere. And I remember that in this revival, the evangelist getting up and he's calling out for people to come down and give their lives to Jesus. And I remember that the power of God was so strong in that place. The Bible says that no man can come unless the Father draw him. And we know that the Father draws by the power of the Holy Spirit pulling people because Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin. And Anyway, so the Holy Spirit, and I remember feeling the power of God so strong in that place that it was like a vacuum cleaner. You felt like a suction of pull to go down and get right in those altars. I don't know how else to explain it. It would take a very hard, calloused, I mean, just a person that has a heart of stone to be able to resist that type of move of God. It was impossible for a lot of people. There was such, such a presence of God drawing people. And I remember seeing people by the hundreds, and that's not an exaggeration, those that were there, by the hundreds, running down the aisle. Some of these came, they, you know, they're straight off the streets. You can tell they, they were, that no church background, running down there to get saved and give their life to Jesus by the thousands after thousands after thousands of people night after night after night seeing this great move of God and I remember that it shook me down to the core because I'd grown up in church and you know I was at the time I was very young in the Lord probably 19 20 years old I myself was was working at a smaller church in a youth ministry and just just helping out with the young people I you know I was still very young dealing with my own issues of growing in the Lord myself but I remember how much that impacted me to see God come down like that because I realized that the things that I had known in Christianity was so shallow compared to what they could be and should be. You know, at that point in time, all I'd ever known was what other youth ministers and other people were doing as far as they were having the lock-ins and the pizza parties and they were getting everybody there and having the games and having all this stuff and they'd give an altar car or something. But this, this was like heaven coming down and people being totally transformed by the power of God. I mean, in that night, well, there were several nights that I went there. I went as much as I could, but obviously I was down there this particular night. I'm talking about all these people getting saved. And I remember going down to get prayer. Some random person, they had altar team workers. I had gone down there, and I just, you know, Lord, touch me, whatever you want to do. And I remember somebody's coming up and just barely praying for me. And all I remember is being thrown in the air, landing on my back somewhere. I was oblivious to what was going on around me, but I remember God putting a fire in me. That's the only way to describe it. When I got up off that floor, I was totally transformed. There was a hunger in me for God's presence, for his word, to know him that I had never experienced in my life. And I came back, I was desperate. I was desperately hungry for God to do something in my life. And that began a pursuit in my life of, you know, obviously you got to grow in Christ. And I didn't have the mentoring I wish I would have when I was younger. And so God had to teach me a lot of stuff. But there was a hunger that God put in me that I wanted to know him and I wanted to be in his presence. I was desperate. I mean, I, I was hungry like, Paul, you've never seen hungry. I mean, God put something in me that, but I needed that. I needed that to draw me into him. 
And tonight, that's what this sermon is about, is a desperate hunger for God. How many people out there are comfortable with their dead religion? I'm telling you, once you've ever had a move of God in your life for real, like the real deal, you will never really truly be comfortable in dead religion again. It won't satisfy you. How many knows you guys have had a good meal in your life? Can you go outside and chew on a piece of, you know, tree bark and be comfortable with things and think, wow, this is the life? You got there and chew on that tree bark for a little bit and you're going to be longing for a hamburger or something before too long because you've had the real deal and you know. But I'm telling you, there's people out there in churches that are sitting there chewing on their little tree bark, spiritually speaking. They got no nutrition. The frozen shows. God is looking at some of these churches. It's like those people back before they had the ice makers, you know, and you had to, and it's like, and they had those trays. And, and that's kind of how it is in a lot of churches. It's so frozen. It's like God having to just break things up just to move a little in a lot of places. And somebody might shed a tear and they think, oh, we're having revival. As they've never experienced anything. But when God comes down, everything will change. That's why I like that song, you know, we sing about when he walks into the room. The, really, the only thing I really like about that song the most is just the message. You know, Jesus, when you come in, as Revelation says, you know, I walk among the lampstands. The lampstand is the church. And so he's walking among the churches. But it also says that he stands at the door and knocks. How ridiculous that sounds. I mean, it's his house. I don't stand at my door and knock at my house. If somebody locks me out, I'm beating on the door like, hey, you know, it's my house. But Jesus is, you know why? Because he's wanting somebody to want him there. He, I'm going to tell you something about Jesus. He, he's not going to spend a lot of time where he's not wanted. I'm just telling you. And there's too many people out there that want him. He'll, he's got plenty of places to go but we want him here. God is one pent-up revival. Revival is really just the manifestation of God. Revival is the fire of God falling because God is an all-consuming fire. He'll set people on fire and they'll burn for him. Leonard Ravenhill said, if the fire's gone out, God didn't die on you. It wasn't God's problem. So if God's not the problem, and we can't blame everything on the devil, then how'd the fire go out? And revival sets things right into God's order in the church. See, when you read the book of Acts and you see supernatural harvest of people coming in, you understand that? We're not talking about five-step programs. That a lot of times these people have a lot of spiritual problems because some of them aren't even true Christians. But when God comes down and there's, there's a conviction of the Holy Spirit and people are gripped with the fear of God and they're really drawn in by the Spirit of God and they're truly born again and they're converted, they'll never be the same. We're not talking about introducing them to religion or having them fill out a decision card or, you know, join a church. We're talking about God coming down and saving folks. There's a difference. There's a lot of places that, you know, you come in and join the membership and they think, well, I'm saved because I joined the membership. There's got to be a new birth. There's got to be 
where we, we are totally different people. Listen, when the seed of God, 1 John 3, 7 through 10, when the seed of God abides in you, you cannot live in sin, the Bible says. You can't. Because the seed of God lives in you. But there's a lot of people out there that really don't know the Lord, and we need revival. We need revival to come into the church and start stirring things up. And people that are sitting in church pews that don't even know the Lord, they're not saved. They don't, they don't know him. That God get a hold of them, and they realize where they are spiritually. Because I'm concerned about that, because Matthew 7, 21 or so talks about that many, not a few, many will say to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord, we did all these things for you. We prophesied. We pray for the sick and they were healed. We cast out demons. You can't cast out demons unless you're a Christian, okay? Trust me. Read the Bible. The seven sons of Sceva tried that. They got a beating. They ran, okay? You just, so, I mean, these people knew God to some extent, but Jesus turned to them and said, I never knew you. You, don't, you, don't, you practice lawlessness. They didn't have a living relationship with him. They were religious, but they weren't really intimate with the Lord they were churchgoers they knew the lingo they knew how to function in things but they didn't want the intimacy with God and they really didn't want to get everything right with God Do you hear what I'm saying there's a difference you can hang around Christianity and function in things but it doesn't mean that everything's right with you and him and I don't know about you but I want to make sure everything's right with me and Jesus and do it for me and I'm gonna tell you you can't do it for other people all of us are on this thing alone I hope that my wife, is, you know, I, I know where she, everything's right with God, but I'm saying I can't take her to heaven with me. She's got to get there with her own personal walk with Jesus. Amen? My daughter, same thing. I can't take people. This, this is one of those things where we've got to know him for ourselves. And in that scripture where it says, I never knew you, the word know in the Greek means intimate. They didn't have an intimate relationship. They really didn't know him intimately. They knew about him. They went to church. They called him Lord, all of that, but they didn't really know him. And we need the Lord to come and begin to straighten some things out. That's revival. Through church history, you know, when things got out of order, things were not where they needed to be, God's people would cry out and God would come down. It's like in the Isle of Hebrides, that, that region. I love that revival. It's one of my favorite. But anyway, that region had backslid away from God. And some of the older people, they knew that God used to move on the island and they saw the churches in revival and they saw people hungry for God. And now they saw a generation come up that was not hungry for God. And spiritually speaking, were dead and dry. They were religious. And all of a sudden, the, the older people got really grieved in their heart, and they were concerned, and they began to pray, and they began to desperately cry out for God. And there was, I don't know what a dozen men, you remember, something like that. It was about maybe five to 12. Six or seven men that went into a barn and began to pray and earnestly seek God for revival for that whole region. And there was two elderly women, and they began to cry out to God and pray, and the Spirit of God fell on that nation. And I mean to tell you that people were convicted and converted. The Spirit of God was so strong. I've shared about this revival a lot. The Spirit of God was so strong that people couldn't even sit in sinful places like bars without being convicted and thinking about Jesus. And that's a historic fact. People, people have talked to the, those that lived through the revival because the revival happened in what the early 50s or something like that. And so there were people still alive and, and there were uh, researchers that went back and found some of these old people. And that's, the whole region was shaken with the power of God. 
I mean, people were, and that's what we need where the Spirit of God comes down. When Jesus comes to you and you've been fishing all night, and he says, just cast your net on the other side of the boat, it's a supernatural harvest. You understand? I hope this is making sense tonight. But I'm tired of church as usual. I won't do it. We've got to have the book of Acts Christianity. We've got to have a move of God. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus told them to go wait in Jerusalem till they're clothed with power. And he said, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses. And so the early church, they knew Jesus had died, raised from the dead. He floated up in front of them. And they, they went in Jerusalem, and they were praying and seeking God. But see, they had a promise. And how many knows today we have a promise for God to come? There's a, was it 2 Chronicles seven fourteen? I believe it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, heal their land. And that's exactly what they stood on in Hebrides. Those men in the barn were crying out to God desperate. They were standing on that scripture. And as they confessed their sin and they prayed, God came down and changed that nation. So we have a promise, just like the early church. The early church, Jesus told them, go wait in Jerusalem. I've made a promise. We have a promise that God will come down, but we've got to believe. Finney, that was the thing that marked Finney's life. He believed. He prayed and believed that God would come down and change things. We've got to lay hold of it by faith. And secondly, we've got to confess our sin and get things right with God. What does it say? If my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray we've got to confess our sins in every great revival in the bible they confess their sins the sins of their fathers and they confess the sins of the region and then the next thing is there's got to be deep heartfelt intercession i've mentioned this last sermon or last time i preached on this this isn't standing around in a circle just asking god to do something i'm talking about groaning and travailing and pressing in romans chapter 8 with the spirit of god we don't know how to pray but the spirit knows how to pray and he'll pray through us with groans and intercession and you hear that with the intercessors why because it's time god is raising up intercessors to help pray this thing in there's been promises in america from credible sources about revival and I believe with all my heart, God's about to send another major revival to sweep this whole nation. But it comes through deep, heartfelt intercession. Like at Brownsville, they had those banners up where people would go and they would pray about different things. But around that revival banner area, they said that people would really groan and travail and cry out. And, and they, were, they were pounding the floor. They were crying out for revival. They were desperate because the Spirit of God was moving on them to pray. And revival came. And like a million people got right with God. When revival comes, it's like the day of Pentecost. Revival will break out suddenly at the fullness of time. As we pray, God hears our prayers, but there is a fullness of time when he's going to come down and do it. And it's our job to keep pressing into him. When revival breaks out at the fullness of time, then you will see powerful preaching under the anointing like Peter on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people get saved at one time. Back before they had PA systems, Peter was preaching, and it, the Bible says they were cut to the heart, they were convicted, and they said, Brother, what must we do? And he told them to, you know, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Also, you'll see a supernatural harvest of souls, and then finally, you will see persecution arise from the religious community. Did everybody get that? Because this is important. 
when revival comes, you understand there's a promise, you lay hold of it, you begin to get things right in your life, you begin to intercede and cry out for revival, revival breaks out, powerful preaching, people are getting saved, people are getting delivered of things, and then persecution from the religious community. The world, the world hates Christianity, but usually the world isn't is persecuting about revival as much as the religious crowd, the modern-day Pharisees, who were the greatest enemies of the early church. Who was the greatest enemies of Jesus Christ? The Pharisees. Just kind of moving with the Holy Spirit about this for a moment, but listen. When Jesus was here, he had 120 in the upper room. But there were 70 that really functioned with him in ministry. Remember, he had sent them out two by two. Out of the 70, there were 12 that really spent time with Jesus. And out of the 12, there were three that were the closest to him. That he would take those three up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He would take those three whenever the dead was going to be raised. And you see that exactly in church. Every church, you've got the, the large group, then you've got a smaller group of people that will do things for the Lord. Then you've got even a smaller group of people that will really be faithful and hungry and passionate for the things of God. Then you've usually got a handful that are beating down the doors every time the church doors are open and hungry and desperate for revival, crying out to God. You hear what I'm saying? I'm preaching that because I'm wondering. There are people out there, like in China, for example, that would give their left arm to have a Bible. But then you've got, in America, you've got people that won't even read the Bible. I remember when uh, Pastor John Paul came from India, he said, you know, there's people that walk miles and hours to come to church where there's no air conditioning. It's in a dilapidated building in India. And people won't even drive a few minutes to come to church in America. Has anybody seen a problem? Where's the hunger and the passion to where people, every time the doors of the church could possibly be open, they're there ready to beat down the door and come into God's presence. They're hungry. They're desperate for God to move. But some people are just as comfortable staying at home. Either way, it makes no difference to them. Where's the hunger for God? Every church I've ever been a part of, going way back, there would always be a small group of people that were willing out of the church to get outside their comfort zone and come to prayer meetings and to go out witnessing. And it was always a church of maybe 300, like 10 people that would come. Are y'all hearing me? Because this is typical in America. And I'm preaching this way because I want to stir people up tonight. Are you as hungry for God as you think you are? Because some people are just as fine coming to church or watching TV. It makes no real difference. They're, whatever. If that's you, God really needs to do a work in your heart. Because God, I'm telling you, Jesus is coming back for a bride that is hungry for him. See, you know, when you look at a wedding and two people are about to get married, is the bride sitting around with her feet up watching TV or is she ready to get married? She's ready to be with the groom. Jesus is coming back for people on fire for him, hungry for him. They're desperate for him. Only God can put this type of a hunger in people. 
And that's what concerns me because when I look out across the landscape of a lot of churches and a lot of places, people are not hungry. There's people that were even touched in revival that I remember from years ago that I know them, I'm friends with them, I keep up with them through social networking. And I see now some of them out of church and some of the things that, that they're allowing in their life. What happened to the fire and the hunger and the passion? They allowed themselves to backslide, get lukewarm, get kind of out of church. I mean, they're not um, in sin completely, but they're just, they've lost the fire. When Jesus, listen, in the early, early days back when they made the tabernacle, God, the priest built the altar, but God sent his fire and consumed that offering and set that thing on fire. But then he told the priest, it's your job to keep this fire going. You've got to change out the wood and keep the fire going continually. And that's exactly what I'm saying today. We've got to keep the fire stoked in our lives. But some people have never really been set on fire. Are you as hungry for God as you say you are really? Are you hungry to learn something new out of his word today? Are you hungry right now today for God to touch you and you're desperate for a fresh touch from him? This is the question tonight. Because the warning the Lord gave us was that there would be people that would fall asleep here in these last days and, and they would grow cold and their love grow cold and they'd be lukewarm and they wouldn't be ready whenever he came. The parable of the wise virgin ought to scare people enough right there that there were 10 of them that were virgins but only five were ready. That means that it's possible if that parable is a prophetic paradigm here that it is possible that 50% of the church won't be ready when Jesus comes. Now that's a scary thought. Now, if that's true, how many of you want to be the 50% that's ready? Because I do. But there's people out there that, that has just grown cold. They're okay. And, you know, you can get even too comfortable when God's moving in churches. You can get too comfortable being touched and, and the miracles where it's just ho-hum, just whatever, you know, no big deal. skip down to the bottom and I might I might hit some of these other points but I'm going to talk for a moment about seducing spirits I don't know if it's in your notes or not but if it's not just listen I want to share something with you first Timothy 4 1 says in the latter times the Holy Spirit clearly says that some will abandon the faith listening to doctrines of demons and seducing spirits seducing spirits can be translated deceiving spirits let me say that scripture again the apostle paul predicted he prophesied he said in the last days the holy spirit has clearly showed me that there would be some people that would abandon the faith that would listen to doctrines of demons and seducing spirits they would abandon the faith Let me tell you what seducing, deceiving spirits are. Seducing spirits will pull people out of the will of God. It's not just sexual, that's one of them. But seducing spirits will begin to, to move upon people and the Bible predicts that in the last days there would be seducing spirits that are at work. Do you remember reading scriptures, for example, in the book of Revelation where the Antichrist, these weird frog spirits came out of his mouth you guys ever read that 
and they went out. If you haven't read that, I encourage you to, to get into the word, okay, and know these things. And then there was other scripture in Revelation chapter 9, I believe, where it talked about the abyss was opened and all these spirits came out like locusts. They just... Well, in the last days, it predicts that there's going to be these seducing spirits that are going out messing with people. See, Satan is trying to seduce people and pull people away from Jesus is what he's trying to do. He's trying to seduce people and deceive people in their minds. And there's some that, you know, are compromising leaders, even in the body of Christ, leaders of homes, but leaders in the body of Christ as well, that are willing to compromise to, to just have peace. Maybe there's people in the church that, that are money people and they, therefore they want things a certain way. And just for the sake of peace, they will compromise what they feel God wants to do to get along with people. That's a seducing spirit. That's pulling them out of the will of God. Amen? Also, there's seducing spirits that want the wrong people in your life. They will try to remove the right people out of your life and put the wrong people in your life as friends, as people of influence, and in romantic relationships as well. They're flat out wrong. They're not God. God didn't send them. The devil sent them. It's a seducing spirit. There's also seducing spirits that try to get people to be worldly and to compromise with the things of the world. If you and I, if we can sit there and watch some of the stuff that's going on in TV and movies where people are having sex on the screen and people are GD this and MF this and it doesn't bother you anymore, you are under the influence of some kind of a seducing spirit. I'm just telling you. You're backslid and I'm telling you tonight, get things right because that's a dangerous place to be. That should grieve you. That's, in other words, what I'm trying to say is it shouldn't be fun entertainment. There's seducing spirits that go out and try to pull people into the occult and into darkness. Are y'all hearing me? That's strong in these last days. There's seducing spirits that try to pull people into being offended and bitter. And a seducing spirit is very strong through what we know as a Jezebel spirit. There may be a husband that has a sincere heart to serve God, but there's some Jezebel woman that's trying to tell him, oh, it's no big deal about watching this stuff and listening to these things and going to these things and always trying to get him to compromise his convictions. That's a seducing spirit. Anybody in your life that's trying to get you to compromise your godly convictions, that you don't feel right about something and they're over there trying to nudge you to do it anyway, that's a seducing spirit, and you don't need that person in your life. There's people that used to be on fire for God. They used to be in revival, but now lukewarm. In dead churches. I'll never understand it. People, I know that God mightily moved in their life, and now they're sitting in dead churches, and they seem to be fine with it. What happened? Some of you can relate to this, but I would drive a long ways to go to an on-fire church. I would. Ask my wife. Some of y'all do. 
But I'm, I'm serious. I could not sit in dead religion and act like it's okay chewing on some dead, you know, dry corn cob or whatever of religion while there's, you know, there's a revival going on. You're saying, yeah, the tree bark, chewing on the tree bark. But let me ask this question. What happened to the Pentecostal churches? Some of you, I don't know how many of you, but how many of you guys, some of you are older, you, you grew up around Pentecostal churches maybe back in the 80s or 90s? Anybody other than me? All right, there's very few. All right. Well, let me tell you how it's supposed to be. There's some of you that don't know. I remember back in the day, we didn't have a lot of the fancy stuff now, but I remember, though, hearing people before church that would be there early, walking the aisles, praying in the Spirit, hungry for God to come. What happened to that? You can't hardly get people to come early to church to pray. It's like pulling teeth. But used to, you would see people, they were hungry for God, they came early to walk the aisle and pray, intercede for God to come, move in power. You could hear the sounds of intercessors and, and the travailing in the spirit as they were crying out for God to move. The gifts of the spirit were in operation. It was not uncommon to hear a message in tongues, an interpretation, a prophecy, to see the gifts in operation. Altar calls were given for people to come down and get things right with God. That's been thrown out of a lot of churches. I remember whenever, if people were not baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, had the gift, you know, speaking in tongues, they weren't baptized in the Holy Spirit, that preachers would tell them, hey, come on down and we'll stay and we'll pray with you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I remember those days. And now in a lot of places, they try to relegate the move of God to a back room because they're ashamed of the Holy Spirit. I remember back when they was preaching against sin. And if you weren't right with God, you didn't feel comfortable in church. Hello? <laughs> if you can sit there and feel comfortable in church living in sin, that's not a place for you. God's not moving. If you're not right with God in here today, you should be squirming because the Holy Spirit is zeroing in on you and telling you you're not as on fire as you think you are. I love the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you feel convicted, man, you should be thanking the Holy Spirit so much because I'm going to tell you, the Bible says God disciplines those he loves. And if he's not convicting you, that's not a good place. I remember back when there was a holy reverential fear of God. And now people are just, you know, they act like God's their little buddy or something. They're in for a rude awakening one day. I remember when there was a holy fear of God about missing the rapture, not being ready. What happened to that? Amen. People live like, well, whatever. It doesn't matter. And they just go about, look, man, there should be a holy fear of God. Like, you know, if I'm playing games and he comes. I remember those days. But how the church has backslid from these things. And there was a godly conviction against worldliness. I remember that. I remember the days when those, those holy men and women of God, they loved God and they had a godly fear that they did not want to lose the experience that they had with God because God really touched them in church. I mean, they had an encounter with God. 
And they didn't want to lose that. And so they, they really guarded themselves and had godly convictions about the way they dressed and the way they talked and the, the places they would hang out in. And now you're seeing things where it's gotten so bad that it's pretty comfortable that, that you know, even women will come into a lot of churches half-dressed. Hello? So-called Christians cussing like sailors, getting covered in tattoos and piercings. I'm preaching the truth tonight, guys. And they don't know God, and they're not right, and they're not ready. And let me tell you something about the Lord. If you really want God to come, he's going to deal with your sin. But somebody that's going around saying, well, I'll ask forgiveness and then keep going back into their sin, it don't work like that. That's why the book of Hebrews was written, specifically chapter 10. If we continue to keep on sinning after we have knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but only fearful judgment. We want revival. Do you want revival preaching? I do. See, I remember back in Brownsville, Steve Hill preached like that, and he'd nail me every time. And I just came out. I said, I got to go get saved again. I run down there. You know, but that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because God was cleaning my life out. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You remember the days back when God moved. You know, you read these old Pentecostal evangels going way back to like Azusa Street and stuff like that. And, and it was pretty common in the Pentecostal evangels back then. Pastor John Smith got up and he preached and all of a sudden fire of God was seen in the back left part of the sanctuary. A mass group of people fell on the power of God, were baptized in the Holy Spirit. A woman came in with crutches and walked out without the crutches. Somebody came in in a wheelchair and left without their wheelchair. Back when God moved. How many are hungry and desperate for God? I was going to get into some other stuff tonight, and we, we do need to cover it, but I may have to cover it next week. But let me tell you that, number one, if there's things you need to get right with God, I'm just telling you that, you know, only God can do it in people. But if you're not right with God, now is the time to get things right with God. If there's sin in your life, you're playing games, you know, you're going to leave out of here and go, you know, live a life of sin, go drinking and partying and sleeping around and doing all that. You're not saved. And if you die in that condition, you'll go to hell. That's what the Bible says. And I love you enough to tell you that, but you better get it right. And right now is the time to get it right. Others, you say, you know, Pastor, after listening to you preach, I, I felt like I was hungry for God. But, you know, to be honest, I don't know if I'm as hungry as I thought. I'm not beating down the doors to come to church. I'm not beating down the doors to come to prayer. I'm not, you know, going out witnessing like I need to. There's something. Listen, normal Christianity, you look at the early church, they were all about the things of God. They, they were out witnessing all the time. Yeah, am I telling the truth? Y'all have read the same? I'm telling you, they're out witnessing all the time. They, they were meeting together all the time. They were hungry. They prayed. They were desperate. That's where it's supposed to be. You say, Pastor Scott, I don't know if that's where I'm at tonight. I want to give you a chance to get things right, okay? So first off, let's do this. If there's some people that you feel like right now, if I was to die tonight, I don't know for sure that I'd go to heaven. Let's deal with that first. So y'all just close your eyes so that there's some people. If that's you tonight and you feel like, Pastor Scott, I don't know for sure. Be honest, I'm, I've been living in sin. I've been messing around with drugs and alcohol. I've been sleeping around. I've been 
doing things I shouldn't be doing, and I'm not right. If I was to die right now, I'm pretty sure I'd go straight to hell, and I don't want to. I want to get things right with Jesus. I'm going to tell you, God will touch you tonight, and I encourage you to get prayer tonight. You need to get things right with Jesus, but the bottom line is we've got to be willing to repent of the things that has been in our lives. Just because you come here and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, that's great. God will forgive you, but you've got to be willing to get it out of your life. Jesus said, and I quote, if your right eye offend you, pluck it out. It'd be better to go to heaven with one eye than hell with two. If your right hand offend you, cut it off. It's better to go to hell with one hand, I mean, heaven with one hand than hell with two. And what he's saying is you need to take drastic measures to pluck out and cut out of your life whatever it is that is holding you back. If that means you got to destroy something that's holding you back, if there's a pornography issue and you got to destroy that computer or throw it out or get rid of it whatever you've got to do to get things right with God so if that's you tonight and you really sincerely want to get things right with God and Christians if you want to pray along with this as well but if you really want to get things right with God tonight I want you to pray this prayer dear Jesus I ask you to forgive me I've been living in sin forgive me for all my sin all the rebellion, all the iniquity that's been in my life. Wash me in your blood. I'm asking you to change me. Change my desires. Let me be born again. For you said in your word, old things will pass away and everything will become new. Do that in me. All the old stuff. Take out of my life. Give me a new heart that burns for you. Put a hunger in me. I give you my life. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and raised from the dead. I put my faith in you. Wash me in your blood. Let me be born again. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. And now I want to do this tonight. I want you, Brother Zach, put on some worship for me. People that are not hungry like they need to be, God's not playing games. And I feel like I'm living in the last days, so I I don't play. I got one life to live. I don't know how long it's going to be till Jesus comes. I don't know how many sermons I'm going to get to preach. This could be my last sermon as far as I know. And I'm not playing with people. If people want to play church, they want to come to church and be whatever, play games with God, be one way at church, another way out of church, you won't last. We won't see you very long. But people that want to be real and they're hungry for God, God's going to draw a line in the sand and there's a group of people that are going to go after God with all their heart and then there's those that won't. I want to be one of the ones that's going after God with all my heart. And tonight, if you want to be more hungry than you've ever been, God has got to put a hunger in you. You understand that it's not something you can wake up tomorrow and say, hey, I'm just going to be more hungry for God today. I wish it was that easy, but you can't just do that. You can't turn it on. It's not a light switch. God has to put it in you. And if you want to burn for him, if you want to have a desperation for him, if you want to be incredibly hungry for God, I'm going to give you an opportunity. If this is not you, 
and you really don't care. You're just enduring the service because you feel like you have to be here. We're all going to pray and you're free to go, okay? But those that are really hungry for God, they're desperate for God to move. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. You can find an altar. Other people can leave. But you can find an altar before God where you get before him if you want to lay on your face, if you want to kneel in your chair, however you want to pray. But let's have an altar call tonight, an old-fashioned Pentecostal altar call where we respond to the sermon and say, God, do it in me. Well, Pastor Scott talked about whenever he was touched at Brownsville and there was this fire put in, Lord, do it in me. I'm hungry for you. I'm hungry. I'm desperate. If that's you tonight, I want you to find a place to pray. You can do that right now. We're just going to go ahead and do that next in the service. Lord, I'm asking as people find a place to pray. Otherwise, if that's not you, the service is over. Feel free to, to go ahead and go. We bless you. We love you. Lord, we're hungry tonight. Do it in me. Do it in me, Jesus. Put a fire in me that won't go out. Put something in me, Lord, that will help me to sustain, be sustained through these end times. I don't want to get lukewarm. I don't want my love to grow cold. I don't want to be distant. I give you my life in a new, fresh way tonight. Come radically change me. I want to be one of those ones Pastor Scott was talking about, beating down the door every time the church is open. When people first get saved, many times they, they can't get enough of Jesus, but that, unfortunately, a lot of people let that die out. for the things of God. I want to love what you love, Lord. I want to hate what you hate. I want to have your heart, your mind. A great revival is coming. A great harvest. enough of your word, can't get enough of your presence. Put it in us tonight, Lord. Increase our hunger. Let us be desperate for you. Let us burn for you.
even now, Lord, I feel there are people that are really hungry. You know who's who's the real deal and those that really have a heart for you tonight. I feel there are some people like that here, Lord. They're really hungry. Lord, I'm asking you to put down in them tonight, Lord, right now. Begin to put down in them, Lord, I pray, a desperate hunger for you like they've never known. We ask you for the grace tonight, for what we need in these last days, to burn for you, to, to not grow cold, to not grow lukewarm, but to really have a passion and a hunger for more of God. And to be able to endure, Matthew chapter 24, endure till the end. Those that endure till the end will be saved. We want to have an endurance until you come. We don't want to be playing games. Put it in us tonight. Put a holy fire. I feel something happening in here right now. Put a holy fire in them, Lord. Put a passion in them, Lord. Put a hunger for your word. A hunger for reading the word and listening to the word preached. Put a hunger in them, Lord, for your presence, for prayer, personal prayer, corporate prayer. Put a hunger in them, Lord, for the presence of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Let it come.
Lord, don't let the worries and cares of this life choke out the fruitfulness. <clears throat> so caught up with other things. Forgive us, Lord. We're getting caught up with whether it's making money or whatever it is. Just caught up with life. Beginning to get dry and cold. Forgive us, Lord. Set us ablaze again. Let our hearts burn for you. like whenever I went to Brownsville and God touched me and set me on fire, I'm going to believe God to touch you tonight and put a fire in you. But before we do that, <clears throat> let me just share just for about five minutes on this right here. Because those of you that are going to be leaders and help me teach and preach and all that, you need to know some of this real quick. You just got to obey the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't think I've ever done it this way before. Where is that going to hit record again for me? We'll just let it flow. With audacity and all that. You good? The music, if you want to kill the music for me. But let me just give you this real quick. Just staying in flow with the Holy Spirit and we're going to pray for people in just a minute. I remember people were so hungry like at Brownsville and other places when I was there. And a guy, an old guy named Elmer, <clears throat> and uh, they had to put Elmer in charge of flipping the lights, man, to get people out because people were so hungry. They wouldn't go home. I mean, people came from all over the world, and if they had it their way. They'd sleep in the sanctuary. They'd just live there for several days as much as they could, and they had it. They could. But see, people were so desperately hungry. I want to be that hungry, and I don't want to lose it. I've seen other people lose it. But those of you that are going to help me in the future to preach and teach, you need to know what I'm about to share with you. I'm only going to take just a few minutes with this, but it's important. When Martin Luther split off the Catholic Church in 1517, the Catholic Church had completely got derailed scripturally for like a thousand years. It's called the Dark Ages. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ had been completely snuffed out. They believed and still do believe that you're saved by being right with their church. Okay? They're not, they don't believe that you're saved through the blood of Jesus, born again. They believe that you're saved for being right with their church. If they say you're saved, and they still believe that. If you don't believe me, look it up. So Martin Luther split off the Catholic Church because he believed, he saw in the scriptures, that you must be born again. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves you. Okay, And so he split off the Catholic Church, wrote this 91 thesis, nailed it to the door in Wittenberg, and started the Protestant Reformation. And with that, many people abandoned the Catholic Church and began to follow his teaching. But even though that was the case, Luther did have some good things to teach, but him and some others still had a lot of Catholicism still in them. And I'll, I'll show you that. But there's two lines of thinking, and you guys need to know this because I promise you it will come up in one way or another. 
So let me just kind of read through this real quick and I'll make it a point here at the end of it. But Luther believed that you're justified through faith in Christ alone, and we are. Amen. It's not works. It's based on your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't earn your salvation. He also believed in the supreme lordship of Jesus Christ over the church. Amen? It's not a pope. It's not a pastor. It's not some religious organization. Jesus Christ as a person is the supreme Lord and head of his church, okay? Not an organization, not a denomination. And he believed in the sovereignty of God. God will do what he wants to do, amen? So I agree with Luther about these points. So I'm going somewhere with this. This is very important that you know this. So John Wesley and many other revivalists, he was an Arminian, which I'll explain in a moment. There's two lines of thinking. But there was another man named Charles Simeon that was a Calvinist. Now, these are two opposing views, okay? And I'm sharing this for a reason. You've got two completely opposing views, and when they clash, it's interesting that they were three things that they ended up having in common that's actually the truth. So Charles Simeon was a Puritan preacher and a Calvinist, and he didn't really like Wesley, as Wesley was an Arminian, you know. And so he's going to go challenge Wesley. And he goes to him and he says, I'm going to ask you three questions. And this will all make sense in a moment, so just keep following me. He said, number one, are you, Wesley, are you so depraved that you could not have come to God unless God drew you to himself by his spirit? And Wesley said, yes, that's true. I, I couldn't have done it. I believe that. I believe God has to draw all of us, you know. And then this Puritan preacher said, Wesley, I got another question for you. Do you look at salvation only through the blood of Jesus Christ alone? And Wesley said, yes, it is not by works. It is by the blood of Jesus that I'm saved. And then he said, I have a third question for you. He said, are you able to keep yourself by your own power in your salvation? You know, are you able to keep yourself? And Wesley said, no. He said, I must be upheld by God like an infant in, a mother, in my mother's arms. This is historic stuff I'm sharing with you, but it's extremely important. These are essential for Christianity today. Well, let me tell you what I don't believe. I do not believe completely in Calvinism. There's a couple points here and there that may be good, but I, I, this is important that I share this. All right. Calvinists, let me, let me read this to you. They believe and they call it TULIP, okay, because of this acronym here you see. Number one, they believe in the total depravity of man. I'm not opposed to that. I think that because of the fall, I think all of us are sinful and, you know, we need to get things right with Jesus. So I agree with them on that point. But here's where I start having disagreements because God does not take away our free will. This will come up in revival. Just, I'm sharing this for a reason. Number one, they believe, well, T, totally depraved the you, utterly fallen humanity, they believe this. 
God chooses some to be saved and some to be damned, and that's just the way it is. I don't agree with that. I don't believe that God creates 10 babies and says, five of you, no matter what you do, you're going to go to heaven, and five of you, no matter what you do, you're going to go to hell, and that's just the way it is. I don't believe that. I believe that God gives us all a free will. Then the L, they believe in limited atonement, that only some will be saved. Therefore, this is explained out, Jesus only died for those people that would be saved. You see what I'm saying? Five would be damned, five saved, so Jesus only died for the five that would be saved. I don't believe that. I believe Jesus died for everybody. And I believe John the Baptist spoke the truth when he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, not a few. They also believe in what's called irresistible grace, the I, that God chooses some, rejects others. I've already explained that. Then the P of tulip, they believe perseverance of the saints, that man has nothing to do with his salvation whatsoever, that God puts it in them, God saves them, God keeps them, and they have no say about it whatsoever. You see what I'm saying? That God puts it in them, God saves them, God keeps them, and they really have nothing to do with it. It's 100% God. I don't believe that. I believe that God gives all of us a free will. This will come up in revival because there are people that are very staunch Calvinists that the followers of Calvin to this day are those that are very anti-Holy Spirit. Many of the enemies of the Holy Spirit that are out there right now, they hate revival. I mean, they hate it. They hate people shaking and falling. They hate people crying and laughing. They say it's a bunch of emotional garbage. They hate Pentecost. They hate tongues. They're an enemy of the Holy Spirit. Many of those people are staunch Calvinists. And so I want you to know about this so when these things come up one day, you're going to understand what's really going on. They believe in this extreme teaching, and, they, and it results in what we know today, and this will be common as once saved, always saved. That's what they believe. That's where it comes from. Now, a little tidbit about Calvin. I'm not anti-Calvin. I'm not. I, I don't dislike the guy. I just don't agree with his view. But Calvin still had a lot of the Catholic Church in him. The Catholic Church would go to great lengths. If you were a true Christian and you preached Jesus Christ, they would go to great lengths to hunt you down and put you in prison and burn you alive at the stake. Okay? And thanks to the Protestant Reformation, they're not able to get away with that anymore, but that's the way it was for a long time. And there were many, many good Christian people that were martyred through the Catholic Church. And Calvin, let me give you an example. He was right at the beginning of this Reformation. There was a man that disagreed with him, just disagreed with him. That was it. Disagreed with his teaching like I'm doing right now. And Calvin had him captured and burned alive with fresh wood so it would take a long time to die. So he still had a lot of that Catholic church stuff in him. Now there's an opposite view about Arminian. I lean this way a lot more, but there's one extreme, I'll, I'll put it out there. But anyway, they believe, Arminian believes that all humanity was created righteous, Adam and Eve, but they became depraved through the fall. See what I mean? God created Adam and Eve righteous, but they fell. 
and so they became depraved. They also believe that Christ died for everybody and that you have a free will to choose Christ or reject him. They believe in conditional election that you have a free choice to accept Christ and you have a free choice to walk away from Jesus Christ as well. They believe that you're secure in Christ as long as you abide in him, John 15. If you abide in me and my words in you, all that. And he said, if you don't, you'll be cut off and cast into fire. So they, they believe along the lines I do. But they believe that your security in Jesus Christ, as long as you abide in him, but it's understood that Christ does help keep us. I lean a lot more this direction because I believe that God gives us free will. I'm really big on that. Because when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he put a tree of knowledge of good and evil there. Why in the world did he put the tree there? Why did he let the devil scurry around in there? Why? Because he wanted Adam and Eve to have a free will. They could choose God or they could choose the devil, but they were going to have a free will. And when man fell, God has always given people a free will. God doesn't come down and twist your arm behind your back and force you to repent and love him. He doesn't do it. He says Christ died for everybody. You can accept it or reject it. It's your free will. And God is so big on free will that after the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, Satan's going to be bound a thousand years. So there's going to be people born during that thousand-year reign. America's only a couple hundred years old. Think about how long a thousand years is. So there's going to be people born during that time that never knew anything but Jesus Christ. They never knew anything but his reign in the earth. So why in the world does God let the devil out at the end of that thousand years to scurry around and deceive people? Why? Because he wants everybody to have a free will. They have a free will to accept or reject him. And unfortunately, there's going to be a group that rejects him still at that time. This will come up at some point with some people. I'm very big on this, and I just want you to know where I stand. I believe that God has given us a free will, and he wants, whenever we're preaching, for us to give people the opportunity to get right with God, but I don't try to make anybody. There'll be people sit in chairs just like you're doing that'll hear these same sermons that'll still be in hell one day because it never really goes from here to here. You know what I'm saying? They don't really truly accept that They really don't go after God with all their heart. And there'll be people that are out there today that don't even know God that one day will be in here and are going to be in heaven because Jesus is going to, we're going to go out there and witness to him and get him saved. Amen. But everybody has a free will. So here's what I'm going to close with. We're going to pray for people. Revival is needed today desperately. Revival is needed when there's a lack of brotherly love did you know the Holy Spirit used to move in some of these old Pentecostal services and, and, and some of those that grew up this way will know what I'm talking about. And the Holy Spirit would move in that church and if people had problems with each other, the, they would start crying and they would go across the church and go reconcile. Remember those days? Yeah. We need revival when people have problems with each other in church and won't deal with it. If you got something against somebody, you need to work it out. Another point is where there's dissensions and jealousy among believers, where people are like, I want to do this. No, I want to do this. I want this. No, I want this. And there's all this. How about all of us just say, Jesus, what do you want? And then we'll all just be happy with that. 
A third reason we need revival is there's a worldly spirit in the church. As I mentioned earlier, people are totally living in sin going to church today. The fourth reason why revival is needed is because Christians are falling into great sin. And the, the fifth reason is because there's controversy in the land. The sixth point is because the wicked triumph. You know, when you look at an area and the bars and the clubs and the brothels and all that are thriving and then the church is struggling, we need revival. Is when God comes down and it's like that concentrated point Remember I was talking about that heel on a shoe? There's no way that woman's weight could poke a hole in a plane. But when you have all that concentrated power on that one point, it could. When God concentrates his power in a region, hell will be crushed. Amen? And when sinners are careless, there's people out there right now just careless, rioting, living in sin, and we need revival to, to really convict people and get them right. But here's what we need if we're going to really see revival. Number one, these are prerequisites for revival. We've got to recognize that we're spiritually bankrupt. We need God to come. We can't do it. We don't have the intelligence. We don't have the means to figure all this out and get everybody right with God. We can't do it even if we want to. We need God to come and move in power. But there's too many people that think, well, we'll figure it out. Let's get another program. You know, people aren't coming. We'll just put more money in this area. We'll, we'll start adding this to our services and taking this out. They're trying to figure it all out. We are spiritually bankrupt in that area. We need God to come down and him do it with his power. Another prerequisite is this. We've got to be hungry for more of God at any cost to the point of desperation. And that's what I preached on tonight. The third prerequisite is this. We have to have united prayer and fasting for an extended period of time, which we've been doing. And the fourth is that we have to be active, being obedient with the known will of God. Just because we're praying for revival doesn't mean we sit around praying for revival. We're still going to be witnessing. We're still going to be praying for sick people. We're still going to be going out, you know, feeding the homeless and doing the things we're supposed to be doing, which we are doing. But we've got to have God come and bring in a supernatural harvest. Evan Roberts was so desperate for God in that great Welsh revival, but he prayed, he grabbed his stomach and prayed, God, bend us. And what that means today, because this was 100 years ago in Wales, it would be a, an expression, but what he's saying is, God, only you can change us. You see what I'm saying? He was saying, God, you come change us. Only you can put a hunger in us and change us. All right, Brother Zach, if you can shut down the recordings again for me and let's put on some worship. We're going to pray for people. Listen, tonight, if you're wanting God to do a deep work in you, only God can do it. We can pray for you and lay hands, but only God can do it. God is your source. You prayed earlier. We had an altar call. If you don't care about this and you want to leave, you know, now's the time. But those that are hungry for God, that are desperate, that are really wanting God to come, because I believe that God is bringing some people to River of Life that are like that. It's not an accident some of you guys were drawn here. God knows your heart and he saw you where you were. And he said, they need to be in a place like this where, where people are desperate. Listen, let God put a hunger and a passion in you 
let him do something deep down in you that only he can do that you'll burn for him that's one of the things i would say you know god really has done in some of our young people and i've seen i know fernando can't be here he's wrestling tonight and all that if he was here tonight i'd wrestle him and show him a thing or two you know but anyway he's he's out wrestling probably winning some medals but the thing is I saw in him when he first came, I saw that God put a desperate hunger in him. And he would sit back there during worship. I'd see him just crying, this big old guy. And he'd come down every time, Pastor Scott, pray for me. I'd pray for him. Pray for everybody else. Pastor Scott, pray for me again. Pray for him. You know, and he'd come back, Pastor Scott, pray for me a third time. Why can't everybody be like that? You know what I'm saying? And when I was at Brownsville, man, I did that same thing. Go to one person, get prayer, go to the next. We've got to be that kind of desperate, hungry for more of God. You see what I'm saying? That's a childlike passion for God, a hunger for Him. I hope that you feel that in this place tonight.